Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 8th of April with me, Ian Welsh. I was in London this week at Innovation Forum's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference. It was great to be back at an in-person event, for sure, and some reflection on the discussions across the two days is coming up shortly. As is a conversation I had recently with David Grayson, Emeritus Professor, former Director of the Doughty Centre for Corporate Responsibility at Cranfield School of Management and co-author of the new Sustainable Business Handbook. No news this week, that will return next time. The Innovation Forum Spring Events series includes conferences on sustainable apparel and textiles, business and climate action, and the future of food both online and in person. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. The online Future of Food event from the 10th to the 12th of May features panellists from Kellogg, Mondelez, Mars, Tesco, Yara, PepsiCo and Unilever, among many others. We'll be talking about how companies can turn the pressures from challenges such as climate change and other issues into business opportunity. If you want to attend, now is the time to reserve your place as you can save £100 on tickets if you register before close of business on Friday the 15th of April. We kicked off our event series with our in-person responsible sourcing and ethical trade forum in London earlier this week. Just after wrapping up at the end of the conference, I spoke with Senior Innovation Forum Associate Peter Stanbury about what we'd learned during the discussions. We're going to try and pull together some of the issues we've been discussing over the past couple of days here at the offices of Freshfields, Brookhouse, Derringer. One thing that struck me was how nice it was to be back talking face to face. There were so many little conversations you know, everybody had that just didn't happen when we were online. Great to catch up with people, but also just to have the kind of little snippets of conversation that just happen at conferences. Yeah, I think that's right. It's the question you can ask before the session and the questions you can ask after the session. Whereas obviously online, you go in, get on a minute beforehand, drop off. It's just that ongoing conversation, that dialogue, I think is really, really important. Well, in terms of things that came up over the past couple of days, inevitably, there was an awful lot of discussion around data. You know, data can be mendacious, it can be rubbish, it can be good. There's been a lot of instances of companies trying to blind people with data. Peter, what for you is important about data? What have you picked up over the past couple of days? As I said in the sum up, it's almost as a bit like one of the heroes of practice around sustainability who sort of got trashed and then rehabilitated during the conference. We had a Cornell professor who presented a great deal of data about human rights and labour practice, due diligence, 40,000 studies of various factories around the world, and basically most of them were rubbish that a lot of the data which absolutely we've relied on actually is wrong. He even demonstrated an example of, of a Chinese piece of software that can generate employment records. You have a situation there where the data was completely wrong. And again, the point was made that data can obfuscate. One of the speakers mentioned that he'd been given a massive amount of data, really the, the aim of which was to confuse. So it's obvious that data can be both wrong, it can be mendacious, it can obfuscate. But equally, without data, we can do nothing. And again, the, the Cornell data showed very clearly that of all the things that we need to look at our unionization and collective bargaining. If you've got those two things in the factory, then you're ahead of the game. So the very fact that much of the data may not be good demonstrates which of the data we absolutely do need. You know, then secondly, in a session that I chaired earlier on grievance mechanisms, it became very clear that often grievance mechanisms can be generated sort of in isolation in invented offices in Western Europe and America. Whereas, in fact, you really need to understand that the granularity of the context in which those grievance mechanisms are going to be used. What are the issues? Why are those issues there? How to interview people? people appropriately. All of that data, all of that insight is absolutely necessary if we're going to move forward. Data got trashed, but then data was rehabilitated. We really need to be focused on what that data is and why we need it. Yeah. 
Another issue that perhaps had a similar narrative arc across the past couple of days mm. is the issue of collaboration. Now, it strikes me that in many ways, people talk of collaboration as the latest silver bullet solution that mm. can solve all problems. Well, of course it can't. And in fact, we did hear across a couple of days, people talking about the need for collaboration, but then also the need for not having too much collaboration. And of course, you made the point that the problem with collaboration is that it means that everything moves forward at the speed of the slowest Indeed, ship in the yeah. convoy. So what did you pick up in terms of what good collaboration looks like? Yeah, I think again, I, at the point I made at the beginning of the collaboration session yesterday. I've been chairing sessions on collaboration and multi-stakeholder partnerships for 25 years. And if the approach that we've taken so far was going to work, it would have worked quite a long time ago. I think the general feeling from the conversations that we've had both in the main sessions and, and off, offline has been that often it's sort of collaboration for its own sake. We must be part of these collaborative fora, which don't necessarily go anywhere. But actually when collaboration is absolutely at its best is when it's there to achieve something very, very specific. One of the speakers was mentioning that they have particular issues in their supply chain and they've identified that through their own efforts and own work, but that they can't solve those issues on their own. They need to work with government, they need to work with NGOs, they need to work with partnership organisations. But it's collaboration, multi-stakeholder collaboration, to achieve a very, very specific goal. And so again, I think it's collaboration as an end in itself for people to be able to say that they're part of this forum, that forum, is pointless and irrelevant. But if it's collaboration to do very specific things, then it's absolutely impossible to move sustainability forward without that as a key tool. Interestingly, on the collaboration and involving government side of things, we had quite a lot of chat over the past couple of days around impact of incoming legislation, the US Tariff Act, the new due diligence rules, which have the potential to do a lot of good. However, what I didn't hear much of was the fact that it's so important to be careful of the unintended consequences of divesting. If you are a business that has progressive supply chain policies on human rights issues as well as everything else, you need to be in the high-risk areas, improving livelihoods for farmers, getting on top of the trafficking, the forced labour issues. If you leave, then those people are not going to be any better off. Yeah, you're chickening out that you not being there is not going to mean that that problem goes away. You're now in a position where you can say those issues aren't in my supply chain, but that doesn't mean the issues have been solved. We saw this with Dodd-Frank. Many companies withdrew not just from DRC, but from a lot of the area around it. An apparently good piece of regulation ended up having very, very poor, bad, negative consequences. Yes, so the legislation must therefore be drafted or introduced in a way that allows companies who are demonstrating remediation and working in in high-risk areas are allowed or not sanctioned for staying there. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And also you want to make sure that particularly with the EU due diligence regulations that are coming down the line at the moment, that it doesn't mean that companies will tend to default to the easier providers. They'll start buying from you know large commercial plantations rather than from smallholders because the former might be able to provide air cover in terms of ticks in all the right boxes. But actually that's not solving the problem of rural poverty in, in many of these countries, which let's face it is what we should be looking to yeah. do. Another area where a lot of people mentioned the need for engaging better with government and in fact, having failed to engage government correctly, perhaps, was around uh, inevitably Brexit. <laughs> if you put out barriers to movement of labour, then inevitably labour violations are significantly more likely. It's, you know that, I know that. It's We've a bit of a no-brainer, yes. We said that this event in the past. And business did make that point to government. Unfortunately, government ignored that advice. And here we are. The problems are exacerbated. 
I mean, it's a point that came up on several occasions. I mean, not just the UK government and Brexit, but developing world governments around issues like cocoa, palm oil. At the end of the day, the issues we're trying to deal with with sustainability are the development issues of those countries. There is a need to engage around how can land holdings be restructured so you can get fewer but larger scale farms. How can you start to develop an industrial approach that says rather than exporting a lot of our commodities in more or less raw state, how can we develop onshore processing? Those are all discussions that need to be had, but they're very difficult to initiate. We talked about climate change a bit as well Mm. in the context of social disruption. Now, the tragedy ongoing in Ukraine is being very disruptive and and millions of people are being translocated and leaving home, walking out away from their homes with, with very little. But the point was made today that that is nothing compared to the tsunami of the 3.5 billion people that could well be disrupted by climate change in the next 20 to 30 years. So that's itself. Many people have said that climate change is the biggest human rights issue. There you are. I mean, that demonstrates why it is the biggest human rights issue. However, it's easy to be negative. One thing that did come up that I was positive about, recruitment fees. There's still a thing in recruitment for many supply chains, but it was pointed out that five years ago, having a company that would had a prohibition of fees was an exceptional thing. But now it is no longer the case. Many, many businesses have recognised the problems associated with recruitment fees. Some companies have been organising repayment of recruitment fees to their suppliers and to their workers in the supply chain amounted to hundreds of thousands of pounds in some cases. So there are signs. Yeah, I think the fact sometimes the challenge for companies has been that they haven't wanted to surface or to mention some of the issues they're facing for fear that they get sanctioned from NGOs, from the press. You can't solve a problem unless you know it's there. And there needs to be much more, one of the speakers referred to radical transparency around some of these issues, that there are not simple technocratic approaches to addressing things like wage rates or income rates in supply chains, addressing issues to do with environmental damage. These are deep-seated systemic issues. And the only way we can start to address them is by surfacing them, by being prepared to talk about them, working out how best different parties can collaborate to address them, recognising that they ain't going to be solved anytime soon, that this is a long-term horizon. The potential around the the climate change situation is frankly scary. But the fact that it's scary doesn't mean we don't have to tackle it. It's not going to go away. And it's only by understanding, coming back to where we started this conversation, data and collaboration. It's only by knowing, really having a clear understanding of what the problem is, not what you'd like the problem to be that, so that you can come up with a technocratic solution. What is the problem? And then how do we as different bodies, be that NGOs, be it companies, be it business organisations, be it government, how do we collaborate? Who's best place to do what and find a solution? Yep. The IPCC still gives us a chance. If nothing else, there's certainly hope in the fact that there is no recognition of the scale of the problems that have to be solved and coalitions of the willing developing. But can they develop fast enough? We will see. Great fun talking to you as ever. Peter Sambury, thank you for your time. Ian, lovely to talk to you. A couple of weeks ago, I was delighted to catch up with an old friend of Innovation Forums, David Grayson, Emeritus Professor at the Cranfield School of Management, campaigner and co-author of the new Sustainable Business Handbook. So David, you've just co-authored a new book, the Sustainable Business Handbook. What's this book all about? So the handbook is meant to be, and hopefully is, a very practical step-by-step guide to what are the key things that any organisation, large or small, needs to think about and to do in terms of embedding sustainability. We start with the basics in terms of organisational purpose and developing a purpose which addresses the issues in terms of how do we find profitable solutions to the problems of 
people and planet and the not to profit from doing harm. We look at how do organisations go about identifying their most material impacts and how to identify the really important priority areas in terms of reducing risk, but also then hopefully finding new business opportunities. And from that, we get into making the business case for action and then through into a whole series of other practical areas in terms of strategy and implementation and culture and leadership and communications and disclosure and storytelling and then also things like partnering for successful embedding of sustainability and advocacy. Why now then? But Why is a sustainable business handbook required right now? We've been very struck by the number of organisations saying for the first time we're appointing a chief sustainability officer. We are just in the process of doing our first materiality matrix. We are just at the beginnings of developing a more comprehensive strategy for sustainability. We think all of those reflects the growing urgency of the sustainability challenges, but also the fact that a whole series of different stakeholders, whether it's institutional investors, whether it's employees and would-be employees or customers or business customers, are all expecting more of business performance in terms of understanding their social and environmental and economic impacts and doing something about it. So we think it's very timely and there's a lot of demand for practical how-to guidance. And that's reflected, of course, I'm sure Innovation Forum is seeing this all the time too, in lots more organisations looking for help. It does feel that the long tail that we've talked about for so long is now beginning to shift. I think that's certainly the case. You make the point around having a chapter on the business case for action. Is that still a thing? I mean, do people still not see the business case around developing more sustainable activities, more sustainable supply chains, treating their employees properly? Is that still a thing? So I do think what is implicit in your question about the movement from why should we do this which is the implicit idea of the business case to how do we do it? That is very much the shift in emphasis we're seeing. But we would argue that businesses still do need to be able to identify what is their business case for action. That may be because they've got some people a little bit more hesitant about the radical extent of the possible new sustainability strategy. It may be that they have some parts of the organisation still a bit questioning about, do we really need to do all these changes and so on? So we do believe that making the case is an integral part of really embedding sustainability successfully. But I agree with what I assume is your implicit comment about the fact that we are now moving from the why much more to the how. In your research for the book, obviously took place during the pandemic, during a series of lockdowns. That then leads to thinking about, well, how has the pandemic changed forever how we work? It does seem that work for lots of people will have changed forever. Did that come out in the research you did? So I'm not sure it came out directly in the research that we did, but we did look at a lot of other people's research around this. Organisations like Deloitte internationally doing a lot of work on the future of work the future of workplaces, the future of organisations in this post-COVID world. I think we have to be careful about saying that work has changed for everybody fundamentally, because clearly throughout the pandemic, whilst maybe you and I, Ian, were getting used to the joys of Zoom and team meetings and working out where we are in the right place and developing the new protocols about how long do you wait for somebody before you send them an email or a message to say, I'm waiting in your waiting room, where are you kind of thing. 
whilst for you and I, I think it has changed the way we work very substantially. And we won't go back to how things were entirely before. But if you are a frontline hospital or care worker, or if you are somebody working in a supermarket and so on, then obviously it's very different. So let's be careful about assuming when we talk about the big changes for knowledge workers, the ability to be able to work much more remotely for more of the time, we mustn't assume that that is the case for everybody. Very good point, David. I, th- I think perhaps for me, the big change will be to see how much work travel people do. Because people do not fall to travel for work. I suspect that's really going to be where the change will be, the way less travelling for work, given so much can be done remotely. In the book, David, you highlight the results of the most recent Globescan Sustainability Leaders Survey that asks about urgency on pressing global issues. So let's talk about some of these evolving issues that emerged. First, climate crisis. What are you seeing emerging as the kind of the real best ways for business to deal with climate crisis? So just to be clear, in terms of what we have covered in our book, we do set out some of the big picture context, which is what you're referring to now. Our own book content is very much the practical how-tos. And for each of the areas that I described to you, we've got a, a standard format in terms of what we're talking about, why it matters, how to do it, and then some practical examples of some companies who are doing it well, we believe, and where to turn to for further resources and so on. And the reason why we particularly quote the GlobeScan Sustainability Leaders Survey is because my co-authors, Chris and Mark, Chris runs GlobeScan and Mark runs the Sustainability Institute by ERM. I think when it comes to something like climate change, then what we're seeing, as in so many other areas of sustainability, is that organisations can no longer get away with some vague declarations and some very, very fuzzy commitments and things. In common with a number of the other critical areas in terms of sustainability, the pressure is now on organisations to be able to produce science-based targets and also ideally to be able to get those independently certified because we are increasingly sceptical and rightly so about any organisations which are trying to greenwash either intentionally or just through being rather negligent and not really understanding the significance of the change that they have to make. Setting science-based targets understanding the key areas that the particular organisation can influence. And for some, it may be in terms of their own scope one, scope two emissions, but for some, it may be much, much more about influencing their supply chains and really trying to help to shape the scope three emissions. It's going to have to be horses for courses, which goes back, of course, to why and how you do a really good, effective materiality exercise to understand where your most significant impacts are. But I don't think any longer organisations can get away with vague commitments. And that's why, of course, many organisations are now looking to develop a wider range of sustainability-related partnerships to help them to share good practice, to be able to learn from other organisations and to be able to develop, in some cases, some practical new solutions. Yes, no doubt that the development of science-based targets has certainly helped companies when they're thinking about their environmental impacts, because at last there's a way of saying, well, what do we need to do? Well, here we are. Here's entirely tightly defined by science the things that we must do, uh, our bit in the practice. 
Also important, of course, the Sustainable Development Goals have been very helpful. I think they've been particularly helpful around the next of the issues I want to talk about, which is addressing global inequality. How are you seeing companies and business in general addressing the issue of global inequality? So I think we're seeing things like the KPMG biannual survey of the reporting on sustainability by major companies. That shows increasing reporting against a company's performance on SDGs, for instance. And so companies determining which of the SDGs are most relevant again to them. That again goes back to this point about materiality, identifying your most significant impacts. I'm particularly interested as, as somebody who's disabled myself, chairing a disability charity in Leonard Cheshire. I'm particularly interested in the way in which organisations can contribute around diversity and equity and inclusion. And there is no doubt that for a whole variety of reasons, not least the social movement pressures from Black Lives Matters, Me Too movement, etc. And also now the emergence of new coalitions like Valuable 500 and the like, that we're seeing more joined up thinking and more sophisticated approaches to a whole variety of diversity and equity and inclusion issues. In some parts of the world, in some jurisdictions, that's being reinforced by things like gender pay gap reporting, proposals around race pay gap reporting, and so on. I hope in due course also around more practical measures to tackle what, frankly, is a scandal of a disability employment gap of almost 30 percentage points in the UK, for instance. Some of the other areas, I think, where companies are trying to be really more proactive, seeing the business case for being more proactive in terms of tackling some of the most significant inequalities. It's around more commitments to living wage. So one of the examples we talk about in the book is Primark with its new sustainability strategy that they launched last September with three broad pillars, one of which is a commitment to pay the living wage, not just in their own factories, but in their suppliers too by 2030, big, hairy, audacious goal, and a commitment, by the way, also to publish the progress that they're making year by year with the data. Those are the kind of things which emphasise, again, companies getting more serious. You in Innovation Forum have been doing a fantastic job for some years now in terms of pushing for more rigour, pushing for the more hard slog around setting the targets, doing the measurement, getting the results and so on. All of that, I think, we're now starting to see working through in terms of more organisations. But one of the other big areas, I think, in terms of inequalities, because what COVID-19 showed us very clearly, is that in addition to the income and social inequalities, we have profound educational inequalities and we have profound health inequalities. And one of the practical areas that businesses can contribute is around health and well-being and around promoting greater wellness in the workplace, not just in terms of conventional health and safety, but also in terms of emphasis on mental health and well-being. I think a lot of us feel that after the COVID-19 pandemic, we're facing already a second pandemic in terms of mental health issues, issues with stress, lots of young people being really seriously affected by the lockdowns and the loss of opportunities to socialise and so on. I think the bright organisations, the thoughtful organisations are already on the case in terms of how we promote well-being. And organisations, of course, like Business in the Community's Health and Wellbeing campaign is a great example of the kind of practical things that can be done. 
a lot of the health and well-being issues linked to the third thing I wanted to talk about, which is the impacts of globalisation, clearly had some negative impacts on many people who are in the least best place to be able to deal with those, those impacts. So what for you, David, are you seeing in terms of the evolving role of business in dealing with negative globalisation impacts? I think it raises questions and we're recording this interview today, hours after an announcement by P&A about massive job redundancies just like that. We'll see how this pans out in terms of legal challenge. But I think that's a classic example of the negative impacts of globalisation at work. Because as I understood the BBC News this evening, they were talking about existing workers all just being notified by video that they were now made redundant, including people who've been working for PNO for a good few years. And at the same time, they were bussing in already new agency staff. That's going to be a very interesting example of how it works through in terms of some of the negative impacts of globalization. And again, that goes back to an organization thinking about what kind of culture it's looking for. Culture is one of the other key chapters in our sustainable business handbook. The greater emphasis nowadays on the role of boards and senior management teams for identifying the desired culture that they want for the organization which they lead, and then regularly checking in to see whether the actual culture of the organization and the desired culture are aligned or whether there is a huge mismatch and what would therefore be necessary to do in order to bring them together. I think these questions about negative impacts of globalization are only going to rise. Another thing that everyone talks about and has been talked about for some time in this context is the shifting role and view of the investment community. What evidence have you seen in your research that suggests that there is a real shift in approach in the investment community and the investment community beginning to really recognise the social and environmental risks that the likes of you and I have been talking about for some time? Yes. So, for example, you just have to read the annual letters that Larry Fink, the founder and CEO of BlackRock, has been issuing now since 2012. One of my co-authors, Chris, his organisation has been doing a really good contextual analysis year by year of the Larry Fink letters, the increasing sense of urgency that he's expressing, making the points about the importance of purpose, not as a contradiction to profits, but as a superior route to profits, the importance of having a strategy for the organisation which takes into account the ESG, the environmental social governance implications of the operations of the business. I think the sheer growth, if you look in things like the Financial Times, in terms of the sheer growth in the amount of funds which are subject to serious ESG screening. I was part of an Institute of Business Ethics webinar earlier on today, where we were looking at the where ethics fits into the whole ESG frameworks. We had a number of mainstream investors talking very, very eloquently and with real substance around the maturing of the ESG field. The very fact that platforms like the Financial Times have introduced their FT Moral Money newsletter twice a week with one of their top journalists, Gillian Ted, responsible for that. I mean, I'm not sure I would have chosen the name Moral Money because I don't think it quite gives the sense of how mainstream this is. But the essence of what they're covering is very much about the growing investor interest in sustainability in ESG questions. I think also, undoubtedly, the regulatory pressures that are coming in a number of different jurisdictions around the world, whether it's the EU taxonomy around what constitutes green investing Yes, some aspects of that very controversial. 
genuine, I think, legitimate questions about, is it possible to have such a binary approach to whether something is sustainable investing or not? But nevertheless, now the fact that this has been adopted, British government has said we'll have a UK version, Canada's doing something similar, the Chinese already taking a large part of the EU taxonomy and putting it into the Chinese taxonomy. So I think also the regulatory side of the pressures, and I was talking to to somebody from the, the reinsurance industry earlier on today who was making the point about the seminal work that Mark Carney did as governor of the Bank of England in terms of driving the task force on climate-related risk and financial disclosure and the systemic risks to the financial system from the climate emergency, and now the similar work going on in relation to the TNFD, in relation to risks to the financial system and to business from the loss of biodiversity and the need to be more proactive on tackling nature. All of these are all signs that institutional investors are taking these questions much more seriously. Also, in the case of at least some of the private equity firms now being much more on the ball in terms of by embedding sustainability, getting better sustainability performance, we get a much better possibility of value enhancement. And I think the other really interesting area that I'm looking at is the growth of sustainability bonds, where the rate of interest that's being charged by big investors is dependent on whether the recipient of the bond is achieving a basket of independently verified sustainability metrics. And the clear indication there, there's less risk associated with better sustainability performance. So I think the evidence is accumulating. It's interesting that you mentioned FT's moral money. It does beg the question, is everything else immoral? Is there an immoral money programme as well? I mean, it's kind of it's, it's strange. We need to move these things to mainstream. And I think, as you're right, they definitely are mainstreaming. Something else you, you mentioned in the book that I'm interested to hear more about from you is about the shift from a just-in-time approach to a just-in-case approach. I guess it's, you're seeing more caution. Perhaps you could explain a bit more about what you mean by this and any examples you can give to illustrate it. Yes, I mean, it's partly about how you build more resilient supply chains. And I think that was already starting to become more of an issue, not least for factories in the United Kingdom after Brexit and thinking through some of the implications of the old models and how they would work with the post-Brexit trade regimes and so on. But there is no doubt in our minds that the COVID-19 pandemic and the global lockdowns that followed from it has led to more organisations having to rethink some of their global supply chains. That's the first point about, if you like, this bit of an aphorism of from just in time to just in case. But I think it is also reflected in the growing commitments around circular economy and to recycling, redesigning, reusing, and so on. One of the examples we quote in the Sustainable Business Handbook is Pandora, one of the, if not the now biggest jeweler in the world, started as a one-shop business in Copenhagen at the end of the 1980s and is now this very large international business. Uh, they too came out with some very, very substantial sustainability commitments only recently. Part of that are commitments around only using industrial diamonds. They are now using mainly recycled gold and silver in their jewellery and so on. So I think that is part of this wider manifestations. Another example, again, we use is IKEA. That's much more on the cultural aspects, but there is no doubt that companies like IKEA thinking about experimenting with new business models where 
the only option is no longer that they sell you the furniture, but also now having a rental model for students or people moving very frequently and so on. So I think all of these are all different dimensions of organisations rethinking their relationship with their customers and also with, with their suppliers. And of course, models like servitization, circular economy, and so on predate COVID-19. But you can argue, I think, that COVID-19 has given a bit of an extra sense of urgency. What wasn't in this handbook that you think will definitely be in the next one? That's a great question. We haven't, as a group of authors, come to any conclusions about that yet, because the book has only been out for a few weeks. So we're just getting some of the initial reaction from readers. And in truth, you know, I'm having more messages from people saying, I bought your book than I've yet had people saying, I bought your book and we've read it too. I think we have to be a bit realistic about the question of the second edition, although we are already thinking about the second edition, not least because this whole field, as you will know so well in the Innovation Forum, is moving incredibly quickly. If we think, for example, about the chapter on disclosure, some of the sections around reporting and different reporting frameworks and so on, that undoubtedly is going to be somewhat different even within the next couple of years or so. So there will be some revisions definitely around there. But if you really force me to say, what do you think already, David, would be something that with the benefit of at least a few months since you handed over the manuscript to Kogan Page would say, mm, maybe we should have included as a separate chapter. I think the queries that we're already getting from some companies about how do we drive this through our supply chains and interestingly, you know, quite a number of, of companies saying, gosh, this could well be the kind of practical toolkit that we need for our suppliers. But I think perhaps also we could have done with a chapter on what are the good practice tips, not just for putting more obligations, more requirements on your global supply chain, which of course, as big global businesses are adopting more ambitious sustainability targets, they have to put more requirements on the supply chain because otherwise they won't be able to deliver on their own sustainability goals. But additionally, where's the good practice in how do you capacity build your suppliers in order to get the value enhancement, to be able to get the greater savings that you need and can achieve from sustainability? Well, David, we'll look out for that in the next issue of the book. But for now, David, as ever, great talking with you and thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget to take advantage of the £100 discount available now to attend the online Future of Food conference from the 10th to 12th of May. Everything you need to know about this and all of Innovation Forum's spring event series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>